Reflections on the Poetry of T.S. Eliot's Ash Wednesday by Gil Bailey Narrated by Gil Bailey and produced by the Cornerstone Forum Part 1 Preparation for Ash Wednesday, which I think has to be understood as an extension of the problem in The Hollow Man, the problem being the confusion over the, re- the need for and the reticence concerning a ritual response uh, to the crisis that Eliot had found himself in. So I'd like to speak for a little while about just the choice of the title. There are six sections to Ash Wednesday, and they were written independently of one another and for the most part published separately originally and then reassembled and represented by Eliot in 1930 under the title Ash Wednesday. Something new is added by the reassembly and by the title. So I'd just like to talk about that. You know, Eliot could have chosen any title, and it's important that he chose this one. Uh, the poem was already written, and uh, the title was chosen afterwards, so we have to, get, I think, pay a little bit of attention to the choice of the title. Ash Wednesday has echoes in it of the central theme of the Judeo-Christian tradition, which is the Exodus story. Ash Wednesday is the beginning of Lent, and Lent is the 40 days of penitence, of reflection, of contrition, of preparation for the central event of the Christian tradition, which is the Passion, Death, and Resurrection. The 40 days of Lent are taken from Christ's 40 days of fasting and temptation in the wilderness in the gospel. And that journey of 40 days into the desert in the gospel is an echo of the Israelites' journey of 40 years in the wilderness after having left Egypt. So we have everything summed up in this Ash Wednesday. It's important to notice that when liberated from Egypt, the Israelites found themselves in the desert for an extended period of time. That is to say, coming up out of bondage, one doesn't go immediately into the promised land. One goes into the desert. So we tend to think of, romantically, of a conversion in a very superficial sense. The conversion would be the point at which somebody decides uh, to affirm this, that, or the other creed, and therefore the questions that have been haunting you go away. So that takes care of that. The conversion is the end of the angst. But it's not that way. The conversion, the crossing of the Red Sea, uh, or for Jesus, you see, the baptism in the Jordan, in the Gospel stories, the baptism in the Jordan leads immediately to 40 days in the desert. So the conversion is not the end of of the quandary, it's the beginning of the quandary. It's the point at which the journey really begins in earnest, and one finds oneself in the desert. Eliot has affiliated himself with all of that tradition, which is to say that now we're going into the desert. And we say, now wait a minute, or let's, let's use Eliot's terminology, we're going into the wasteland. We say, wait a minute, that's where we just came from. We just came from the wasteland. Well, Ash Wednesday is the wasteland contextualized, or put another way, it's the wasteland with a telos, with a conclusion to it. It's a, waste, it's a wasteland now understood as a place of struggle and trial and difficulty and fasting and temptation. 
but a place that has as its goal the other side of the desert, the other side of the journey. So we're not suddenly out of the wasteland. We're just in it in a different way, experiencing it in a different way. The, another metaphor, and we must recognize that Eliot is using Dante very heavily in, the, in these poems. Another metaphor for this is one we've used before, is that we're going from the Inferno to the Purgatorio. And the difference between the Inferno and the Purgatorio is not that there's no suffering in the Purgatorio. There's plenty of suffering in the Purgatorio. But in the Purgatorio, the suffering is accepted as a necessary part of the, the, of the purgation or the returning to some kind of original readiness. Also implicit in the choice of, of the title, Ash Wednesday, is what Ash Wednesday stands for itself, not merely as the beginning of Lent. And that is, it's the day on which we are told, with ashes on our forehead in the, in the old tradition, we are told that we're returning to dust. We are told in a ritual way that we're going to die. Now, for most of us, that doesn't seem to come as any great surprise. Well, then why is the ritual there? If most of us go about our daily life perfectly aware of the fact that we're going to die, why does the church, in her wisdom, think it necessary to subject us to a ritual that would remind us of that? I think it's because we don't really know that we're going to die. We accommodate to the fact of death, but the church comes along once a year and says, now we must face this fact and see what it does to, if you face this fact really and truly and squarely, see what it does to your habitual way of carrying on your life. See if it has an effect on it. Now, we have, fortunately, in our time, not only the, ongo the ongoing ritual of uh, Ash Wednesday has maybe lost some of its potency for us, but we've had uh, a visitation from the Spirit in the form of uh, Ernest Becker's book entitled Denial of Death. And I just want to associate the thrust of that book with the, with, the, uh, with the ritual of Ash Wednesday and the purpose of Ash Wednesday. The purpose of Ash Wednesday is to teach us in ritual form what Becker tries to show us in the 300 pages or whatever it is of his book. This is, uh, if, if it can be done in a, in a three-minute ritual, that is uh, economy. Uh, to sum up what uh, what Becker has done. I, I think we probably need a little both. We need to read Becker and subject to the ritual as well. But I'd like to bring Becker in so that we get a feel for why it is Ash Wednesday has its position as it does with regard to Lent and all of the Exodus tradition that Lent is an echo of and also why Eliot chose it. Let me quote Becker. It doesn't matter whether the cultural hero system is frankly magical, religious, and primitive or secular, scientific, and civilized. It is still a mythical hero system in which people serve in order to earn a feeling of primary value, of cosmic specialness, of ultimate usefulness to creation, of unshakable meaning. They earn this feeling by carving out a place in nature, by building an edifice that reflects human value, a temple, a cathedral, a totem pole, a skyscraper, a family that spans three generations. The hope and belief is that things that man creates in society are of lasting worth and meaning, that they outlive or outshine death and decay, and that man and his products count. 
And then Becker later goes on to say, to become conscious of what one is doing to earn his feeling of heroism is the main self-analytic problem of life. Everything painful and sobering in what psychoanalytic genius and religious genius have discovered about man revolves around the terror of admitting what one is doing to earn his self-esteem. This is why human heroics is a blind drivenness that burns people up. In passionate people, a screaming for glory as uncritical and reflexive as the howling of a dog. In the more passive masses of mediocre men, it is disguised as they humbly and complainingly follow out the roles that society provides for their heroics and try to earn their promotions within the system. When he finally gets to his point, he says, Consciousness of death is the primary repression, not sexuality. This is the repression upon which culture is built. And then, uh, in a way, referring, I think, to something that's quite specific to Eliot, he says, It can't be overstressed, one final time, that to see the world as it really is is devastating and terrifying. It achieves the very result that the child has painfully built his character over the years in order to avoid. It makes routine, automatic, secure, self-confident activity impossible. That's the apocalyptic, in a way, the apocalyptic shattering. Well, nobody wants to be there, much less stay there. Uh, but Eliot found himself there. And this poem is the documentary record of what happened when he found himself there. George Meredith, in a series of poems called Modern Love, this is apropos of Eliot too, I think, has two lines that always have always uh, interested me. He said, Not till the fire is dying in the grate look we for kinship with the star. But I'd like to add a little paraphrase to that, which is not George Meredith's, and that is, Not till the stars prove cold and indifferent is there kindled within us the fire of God's love? And it's that second one that Eliot has, is now experiencing. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn, desiring this man's gift and that man's scope, I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wing? Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign? Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I do not think, because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power. Because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. Because I know that time is always time and place is always an only place and what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place. I rejoice that things are as they are and I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice. And pray to God to have mercy upon us. And I pray that I may forget these matters that with myself I too much discuss, too much explain, because I do not hope to turn again, 
Let these words answer for what is done, not to be done again. May the judgment not be too heavy upon us. Because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, the air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will, teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. In Hollow Men, he said, we remain sightless unless the eyes reappear as the perpetual star, the multifoliate rose of death's twilight kingdom, the hope only of empty men. The hope only of empty men. Empty as opposed to being either hollow or stuffed. But to be empty, the la remember Pandora's box, the last thing in it was hope. Hope didn't come out. The rest of the things flew out. And hope sat in there. So to, uh, to, to empty the box, you have to pick it up and turn it upside down and shake it. And when you do that, hope comes out. Hope, sm a spell with a small h, comes out and falls on the ground. And then you've got an empty box. So the hope only of empty men, uh, one, those who have hope with a small h, that is to say, not the theological virtue of hope, but the other kind, have yet to be emptied. And Eliot, is, at this point, is, is, I think, empty. Let me just make one a, a little association here. At the end of Homer's Iliad, Priam and Achilles meet each other. And in each instance, there is a little ritual in which Homer shows us that both of them have abandoned everything, including, very specifically, any hope of anything after this meeting they're about to have. And as a result of that renunciation of any hope beyond that, something very profound happens. Something very profound. So what uh, Paul Ricoeur calls an absolute action. The world opens up suddenly because that hope is gone. The first line of the poem, Because I Do Not Hope to Turn Again, is taken from... Now, there are literary sources ad nauseum in this poem, and, I, and we just break our tempo to go to them all, but I am going to stop at two in this first little section because I think they help us get a sense of, of the atmosphere. The first line is from the first line of a poem by Cavalcante. Cavalcante was a, a contemporary of Dante's and one who wrote uh, romance poetry, as Dante did, and addressed the poems to his lady, as Dante did. The poem is a farewell ballad to his beloved, describing his plight as he is dying, uh, exiled from her. So can't, can't make that, won't ever be able to make that connection. Is abandoning the hope of being able to make that connection. Because I do not hope to turn again. Because I do not hope. Because I do not hope to turn. Desiring this man's gift and that man's scope is a slight paraphrase of a line from Shakespeare's Sonnet 29. So let me read the sonnet and come back to it. When in disgrace with fortune in men's eyes, I all alone beweep my outcast state and trouble deaf heaven with bootless cries. 
and look upon myself and curse my fate. So far we're talking, we, we see how this would resonate with Elliot. Wishing me like one more rich in hope, featured like him, like him with friends possessed, desiring this man's art and that man's scope, with what I most enjoy contented least, Yet in these thoughts, myself almost despising, haply I think on thee. And then my state, like to the lark at break of day, arising from sullen earth, sings hymns at heaven's gate. For thy sweet love remembered such wealth brings, that then I scorn to change my state with king. Eliot does not desire this man's, not art, but gift, and that man's scope. He may be talking about Dante here. He may be giving up the hope of being a new Dante, uh, not having available Dante's cultural resources. And then there follows a little parenthesis. I think it's a, there's, there's an actual parenthesis beginning with why should the aged eagle stretch its wing. That line is in parenthesis. But I think there is a, a larger un, uh, unprinted parenthesis beginning with the line right after desiring this man's gift and that man's scope. At least that's how it sounds to me. I no longer strive to strive towards such things. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wings? Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign? To me, that is the larger parenthesis. I no longer strive to strive towards such things. There is a period already in Eliot's life where he has been striving to strive like everybody else. And it's not as though it's what, he is, what he is no longer doing is striving to strive. He's, it's been a long while since he's been able to strive. But what he's been trying to do lately is to try to strive. And he can't even do that anymore. Why should I mourn the vanished power of the usual reign? There is nothing in it anymore that he recognizes as worth the effort. The vanished power of the usual reign. The aged eagle, aged not because he's old, but aged in the same way that Koheleth of Ecclesiastes is aged. Once all of the youthful self-delusions about what's going to satisfy or make us happy or you know, all the little carrots that are hanging out there that get us to run the track, uh, once those are gone, uh, one is aged in that sense, not because of chronological age. I think for Eliot often associates himself with the aged one. And I think he's really associated himself with, with Koheleth of Ecclesiastes. So the poem begins with a great sigh of, uh, of resignation. But if you grant uh, my premise, which is that there is a parenthesis beginning with I no longer strive and ending with the vanished power of the usual reign, then we are back to preliminary clauses because I do not hope to turn... And the next section begins, because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. Notice in this section and elsewhere what the right hand gives, the left hand takes away. There is glory here, and there is the positive hour, but it's infirm. Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour. Because I do not think because I know I shall not know the one veritable 
transitory power. There's another sort of oxymoron. It is a veritable power. It is a true power, but it's also a transitory one. If you must know, this may have something to do with Eliot's marriage, such as it was, and a celibate condition that was partly imposed and partly at this point accepted as a fact of life. I don't want that to lead us off into Freudian snickers because that's where the, the criticism of this poem has it goes nowhere. Because I do not hope to know again the infirm glory of the positive hour, because I do not think, because I know I shall not know the one veritable transitory power, because I cannot drink there where trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. This is the, this is the desert. He can't find a oasis or certainly not the garden where the trees flower and the springs flow. So he has no hope of any of that. And we're still searching for, if, if you'll allow my thing about the parentheses, we're still searching for the verb in this sentence. Because I know that time is always time and place is always and only place and what is actual is actual only for one time and only for one place I rejoice. There's the verb. Holy schmoly, I rejoice that things are as they are. And I renounce the blessed face and renounce the voice because I cannot hope to turn again. Consequently, I rejoice having to construct something upon which to rejoice. I should just say what associates in my mind with it is Canto 19 of the Purgatorio. In that canto, Dante has a dream, and in the dream, he meets this haggard old woman. And then he says, I looked at her, and just as sun revives cold limbs that night made numb, so did my gaze loosen her tongue and then in a little time set her contorted limbs in perfect order, and with the coloring that love prefers, my eye transformed the wanness of her features. So his gaze began to transform uh, this otherwise suspect old crone into this beautiful woman. And when her speech had been set free, then she began to sing, so that it would have been most difficult for me to turn aside. I am, she sang, I am the pleasing siren who in mid-sea leads mariners astray. There is so much delight in hearing me. I turned aside Ulysses. I turned aside Ulysses. Eliot begins, because I do not hope to turn again. Although he longed to journey, who grows used to me seldom departs. I satisfy him so. Keep that in mind for something that comes later in the poem. Her lips were not yet done when there beside me a woman showed herself alert and saintly to cast the siren into much confusion. O Virgil, Virgil, tell me, who is this? She asked most scornfully, and he came forward, his eyes intent upon that honest one, and he seized the other one and, and tore off her disguise and revealed her for this wicked crone that she was. And all that happened on the place in purgatory where the slothful are being purged of their sin. It's a way of, it's catching mid-course, it's mid-course in the journey of the purgatorio, 
and this crone refers to catching mid men at mid sea and getting them to conspire by the way in which they use their eyes to regard her as this divine one and to be caught up in in the tangle of that and give up the journey give up the journey as ulysses did in in her reference or the journey up the purgatorial mountain what the poem this reference to dante shows is that reason is not good enough virgil is the personification of reason virgil says later i tried to wake you up from that dream and i couldn't but he was only awakened from it by the presence of this other woman. But like Dante, his great teacher in Canto 19, he has to reject that face and reject that voice. And he does so only because another woman, one who is alert and saintly, one who, it says, Virgil turned, focused his eyes on that honest one, shows herself, presents herself. And then he prays. And I pray God to have mercy upon us. Because I do not hope to turn again, let these words answer for what is done, not to be done again. May the judgment not be too heavy upon us. Because these wings are no longer wings to fly, but merely vans to beat the air, the air which is now thoroughly small and dry, smaller and drier than the will. Teach us to care and not to care. Teach us to sit still. Pray for us sinners now and at the hour of our death. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. A passage which does two things. It superimposes now and the hour of our death. Pray for us now at the hour of our death, but also, I think, associates us, prepares us for the next word of, of the second section of the poem, of the, the word that starts the second section of the poem, which is lady, because this is the last phrase out of the Hail Mary, the Ave Maria. Pray for us now and at the hour of our death. So subtly or subliminally, the first section, which has renounced the blessed face and the voice, ends with a subtle hint of a prayer to Mary, to the, to the blessed face. Eliot wrote an essay on Dante in which he talked about the pageant at the top of the Purgatorial Mountain. And he said of that pageant, it belongs to the world of what I call the high dream. That's the pageant in which Dante and Beatrice meet. And Dante crosses the two rivers and undergoes a tremendous contrition in the presence of Beatrice and essentially comes apart and then is reformed and ready for his journey into paradise. But Eliot says, it belongs to, a, to the world that I call the high dream and the modern world seems capable of only the low dream. I arrived at accepting it myself, only with some difficulty. The high dream is Dante looks into the eyes of Beatrice. Beatrice is looking at the griffin, and he sees the reflection of Christ. He meets Christ in the eyes of Beatrice. Elliot says, we only know the low dream. This is, this is what Miss Marilyn said. Uh, this must have been some years ago. Miss Marilyn had a date with Frank Sinatra. And this is how she spoke of it afterward. He was my date. I got a massage. I must have taken five aspirins to calm myself down. In the restaurant, I saw him from across the room and got such butterflies in my stomach and such a thing that went from head to toe. He had like a halo around his head of stars to me. He projected something I have never seen in my life. When I'm with him, I'm in awe. 
I don't know why I can't snap out of it. I can't think. He's so fascinating. It is the same, really, experience. The difference is that it's being experienced in one instance by Dante and in the other instance by Miss Marilyn. And perhaps the difference, part of the difference, is it's being experienced in the 20th century when the taste for the high dream has all but evaporated. Well, on with Eliot's discussion of what happens at the top of the Purgatorial Mountain. He says, quote, We can begin to understand how skillfully Dante expresses the recrudescence of an ancient passion in a new emotion, in a new situation, which comprehends, enlarges, and gives meaning to it. And then he quotes from, from Purgatorio uh, 30. Then Eliot goes on, And in the dialogue that follows, we see the passionate conflict of the old feelings with the new, the effort and triumph of a new renunciation, which is Dante being reduced to nothing in the presence of the lady. Now, Eliot says, We cannot understand fully Canto 30 of the Purgatorio until we know the La Vita Nuova, which, in my opinion, should be read after the Divine Comedy. La Vita Nuova is the, is the part prose, part poetry piece that Dante d had done in his early life, uh, reflecting on the meaning of, of the Beatrician experience. Section 2 of Ash Wednesday was published independently by itself before it was brought into this poem. And when it was published independently, it had this title, sort of the title subtitle. The title is Salutation, and the more or less subtitle is Vo Significando. Okay, so I want to go to find out where he got those titles and why, what he means. Again, titles are very important. Titles help us understand what he's doing. In uh, Canto 24, The Purgatorio, Dante is being questioned by a fellow poet who wants to know, who, is this who I think it is? The poet is saying to Dante. He says, but tell me if the man whom I see here is he who brought the new rhymes forth, beginning, ladies who have the intelligence of love. And Dante answers, I am the one whom, when love breathes in me, takes note, what he within dictates, I without would speak and shape. And the Italian is, vo significando. I speak what love is dictating to me. I give it significant shape. I give significant shape to the message of love that I feel in me. Vo significando is Eliot saying, I'm trying to give significant shape to a feeling of love, but he's giving significant shape to this love as an act of literary construction, having to construct something upon which to rejoice. He didn't have a literal Beatrice the way Dante did. But he feels the same emotions. And so he constructs a poem and creates the lady in the poem and expresses the feelings, not as a way of making a fiction, but as a way of making truth by constructing a, a, a fictional poetic character, the lady. And I, to me, this is what the reference to having to construct something upon which to rejoice uh, means. So that takes care of the subtitle, Vo Significando. Now, the title is Salutation, which takes us to, to section uh, 18 of Dante's La Vita Nuova. I hope this, I know this, in a way, having little literary searches like this can get us out of the mood of the poem, but, but I think it, in a poem this complicated, we need a little outside help. At least I do. 
I'll paraphrase part of this and uh, share part of it. It's translated into a kind of an antiquated English. Dante, at this point, is describing the situation. After he has uh, seen Beatrice on the street, every time he sees Beatrice on the street, he falls apart. He doesn't know what to, I mean, he just comes unglued. At one point, she said, she saluted him. She turned to him as she walked by and said, salute, which comes from the word for salvation. And Dante recognized immediately it had to do with his salvation. He understood that what she just did had something to do with his salvation. And he went home and poured his heart out. Well, it was clear to her friends and his friends that he was in love with this woman. But her friends, these are, after all, uh, late adolescent uh, Florentine women who are walking around the streets th talking to themselves about, is he going to fish or cut bait? Because he couldn't stand to be in her presence. So at one point, that he runs into him on the street, and he was relieved to, know that, to notice that Beatrice was not there because he couldn't stand to be in her presence. And they came to him and they said, to what end is your love directed? And Dante says, ladies, the end and aim of my love is but the salutation of that lady of whom I can see that you are speaking. The whole purpose of it is that salutation. He goes on to say, wherein alone I found that beatitude where, there where my hope will not fail me. In her salutation is the beatitude that is the purpose of this whole love of mine. Well, they sort of snicker and sigh and giggle. And then they say, well, tell us wherein abideth that beatitude. And he said, in other words, where can, how, what exactly is that beatitude? What? And he said, in the poetic words that I write, in other words, that beatitude, the nature of that beatitude is, is transmitted in the poetry. And they question him further in a kind of a sneering way about that which was the sort of the 14th century version. They didn't have Freud. You see, if they'd had Freud, they'd have just beaten him over the head with it. But it's this 14th century version of the same thing. Saying, oh, I see. You're really afraid of her, and uh, so you're just sublimating and whatever that. It's that kind of a... Dante goes home really distraught, and he write, begins to write a poem which comes to him. The, the words come unbidden to him in his ang anxiety or confusion over what just happened. And the line is, ladies that have the intelligence of love. In the poem, he says, I'm not going to talk about this anymore except to the ladies who have the intelligence of love, those who understand these. And I'm not going to try to share it abroad. It's just not going to, it just doesn't wash. Well, it's very interesting because Eliot got some snickers of his own. As he begins this poem, he, the title of it, when it's independently published, is Salutation, which is a way of saying the purpose of this love is in the salutation, in the greeting. And the first line of the poem is, Lady. And the other subtitle of the poem is, The Message of Love Being Given Literary Shape in a Construction, a Literary Construct, Having to Construct Something upon which to rejoice. Lady, three white leopards sat under a juniper tree in the cool of the day, having fed to satiety on my legs, my heart, my liver, and that which had been contained in the hollow round of my skull. And God said, 
Shall these bones live? Shall these bones live? And that which had been contained in the bones which were already dry said, chirping, Because of the goodness of this lady, and because of her loveliness, and because she honors the Virgin in meditation, we shine with brightness. And I who am here dissembled proffer my deeds to oblivion and my love to the posterity of the desert and the fruit of the gourd. It is this which recovers my guts, the strings of my eyes, and the indigestible portions which the leopards reject. The lady is withdrawn in a white gown to contemplation in a white gown. Let the whiteness of bones atone to forgetfulness. There is no life in them. As I am forgotten and would be forgotten, so I would forget thus devoted, concentrated in purpose. And God said, Prophesy to the wind, to the wind only, for only the wind will listen. And the bones sang, chirping, with the burden of the grasshopper, saying, Lady of silences, calm and distressed, torn and most whole, rose of memory, rose of forgetfulness, exhausted and life-giving, worried, reposeful. The, the single rose is now the garden where all loves end. Terminate torment of love unsatisfied, the greater torment of love satisfied. End of the endless journey to no end. Conclusion of all that is inconclusible. Speech without word and word of no speech. Grace to the mother for the garden where all love ends. Under a juniper tree the bones sang, scattered and shining. We are glad to be scattered. We did little good to each other. Under a tree in the cool of the day, with the blessing of sand, forgetting themselves and each other, united in the quiet of the desert. This is the land which ye shall divide by lot, and neither division nor unity matters. This is the land we have our inheritance. Well, somebody, uh, one of the early critics said uh, something to the effect that uh, you never, you, you never uh, reach the peak from which you can uh, look around, but you always feel like you're trekking in the high mountains. You almost reach the peak, it seems to me, in section two. And it concludes with that sense that we have our inheritance. We have to understand how deeply Eliot wanted to have his inheritance. And I think what he envied in Dante most was that Dante had one and he did not. So, it's addressed to the lady, and these are the conditions. Three white leopards sat under the juniper tree in the cool of the day, having fed to satiety on my legs, my heart, my liver, and that which had been contained in the hollow round of my skull. So we have two things to do something with here for a second. Three white leopards and uh, the juniper tree. In the first canto of the Inferno, Dante wanted to run up that little hill with the sun coming up behind it. And the text says this, And almost where the hillside starts to rise, look there, a leopard, very quick and lithe, a leopard covered with a spotted hide. He did not disappear from sight, but stayed. Indeed, 
he so impeded my ascent that I had often to turn back again. I had often to turn again. Because I do not hope to turn is the way the first section started. That leopard for Dante was the leopard of lust. But that leopard now for Eliot is a, is, has become three white leopards. It, is, it has become a kind of epiphany. So lust has transformed itself into a kind of epiphany. And those leopards are now devouring his flesh and have devoured his flesh, leaving nothing but white bones. So a transformation, I think, in the sense of what in its crudest form is lust, but having undergone a, uh, a very important symbolic transformation. The juniper tree probably is associated, I think almost without doubt, associated with First Kings, the story of Elijah and Jezebel. Jezebel was the, was the wicked queen of Ahab, and she represented the pagan idolatry and uh, I must say murderous pagan idolatry that had uh, captured the Israelite spirit under her influence. And her opponent was Elijah the prophet. And Eliot, I think, regards himself in something of the prophetic stance with, re with respect to a culture that has fallen under the influence of a kind of uh, Jezebel. And in the, so he, would, he might associate with some of the imagery. Jezebel decides she's going to kill Elijah, and Elijah flees to the desert. He rose and went for his life. He went a day's journey into the wilderness and came and sat down under a juniper tree. And he asked that he might die, saying, It is enough. Now, O Lord, take away my life, for I am no better than my ancestor. Can you hear this coming from Eliot? And he lay down and slept under a juniper tree, and behold, an angel touched him and said, Arise and eat. And he looked, and behold, there was at his head a cake baked on hot stones in a jar of water. And he ate and drank and lay down again. And the angel of the Lord came and said again to him, Arise and eat, else the journey will be too great for you. And he arose and ate and drank and went, went in the strength of the food forty days and forty nights to Horeb, the mount of God. So the juniper tree is the place where Elijah abandons his prophetic role and abandons any hope and says to God, take my life. And mysteriously, an angelic power comes and visits him under the juniper tree and causes a transformation to happen, which sets him on the course of a 40-day, see, read Exodus, Temptations in the Wilderness, Lent, journey to the mountain of God. Well, for Eliot, the angel of the Lord is represented by the three white leopards. Lust transformed into some powerfully significant religious agent. He had studied his Dante well, see. And now, of course, the flesh has been eaten off the bones by the three white leopards. And God said, this is from Ezekiel 37. Ezekiel 37 has, has been a, a key text for Eliot for a long time. 
And God said, Shall these bones live? Shall these bones live? And that which had been contained in the bones, which were already dry, said, Chirping. Because of the goodness of this lady, and because of her loveliness, and because she honors the virgin in meditation, we shine with brightness. So this transformation is connected to this lady. And now the voice is the voice of the bones and or the voice of the poet. And I, who am here dissembled, proffer my deeds to oblivion. Uh, an echo of the bones being sca scattered. But also the I, the ego, is an artificiality, a dissemblance. I who, I who am here dissembled proffer my deeds to oblivion and my love to the, pro to the posterity of the desert and the fruit of the gore. That's abandoning any of the immortality projects that Becker was to many years later uh, warn us to often constitute our life projects. I proffer my deeds to oblivion. It is this which recovers my guts, the strings of my eyes, and the indigestible portions which the lip leopards reject. It is the willingness to proffer one's deeds to oblivion. The lady is withdrawn in a white gown to contemplation in a white gown. Let the whiteness of bones atone to forgetfulness. There is no life in them. As I am forgotten and would be forgotten, so I would forget and thus devoted, concentrated in purpose. And God said, prophesy to the wind, to the wind only, for only the wind will listen. And the bones sang chirping with the burden of the grasshopper. The burden of the grasshopper is a, a phrase out of Ecclesiastes that has to do with uh, the weariness of approaching death and so on. Saying, and this, port, this next portion, which we may not need to uh, repeat, is a litany. For those of you who may not be familiar with litany as a genre, the purpose of litany is not to inform us, but to wear the uninformed mind down, <laughs> to uh, break down the, the mental block. And to do that, particularly for us modern, it takes a very long litany, you know, it takes one of these like the ancient, in the ancient church, you know, to, <laughs> these litanies might go on for an hour in Latin. Finally, it might have the effect. Well, Eliot doesn't have that much time, so he has to add a feature to the litany, which is paradox. Calm and distressed, torn and most whole, but it's still performing the, the generic job of the litany, which is to break down the recalcitrant mind. End of the endless journey to no end. If it's an endless journey to no end, it's hell. Once there's an end to the endless journey to no end, it's purgatory. Under a juniper tree, the bones sang. Scattered and shining, we are glad to be scattered. We did little good to each other. Under a tree in the cool of the day, with the blessing of sand, forgetting themselves and each other, united in the quiet of the desert. Now, this is so subtle that it's remarkable that we have to hover over it a little bit. Under the juniper tree, where they had been devoured by the three white leopards, the bones begin to sing. Scattered and shining, 
they sing, we are glad to be scattered. This is Felix Kulpa, Oh Happy Fall. Glad to have experienced the fall, the dismemberment, the disaster, the torment, because of what comes after. We did little good to each other. Under a tree in the cool of the day with the blessing of sand. Now notice this, in the cool of the day is a reference to the Garden of Eden. Now all the rest of this is desert, wilderness, uh, parched, the bones are dry. Now, under a tree in the cool of the day, the Lord God walked in the cool of the day in the garden. In section one of the poem, he said, because I cannot drink there where the trees flower and springs flow, for there is nothing again. But now this new discovery, and suddenly there's a connection between the garden and the desert with the blessing of sand, forgetting themselves and each other, united in the quiet of the desert. So the desert has now become the desert of the desert fathers, what's called the desert fathers in the Christian tradition. Those who went to the desert to discover something they could not discover in the unreal city. This is the land which ye shall divide by lot. And neither division nor unity matters. This is the land we have our inheritance. References to Ezekiel 37 again. Ezekiel is prophesying in Babylonian captivity. And prior to Babylonian captivity, the Israel, uh, Israel had been divided into two contentious nations, the northern and southern kingdom. And Ezekiel is prophesying that that will no longer be the case. So, this is the land you shall divide by lot, and neither division nor unity matters. This is the land. I think what Elliot is saying here is that we always divide this land by lot because it's only in a very rare moment that we discover that the desert and the garden are the same place. Most of the time, we understand them as being radically opposite. And Elliot is a place where he's discovering that, discovering that, that, that the flesh and the spirit are the same, that the garden and the desert are the same, that life and death are that interpenetrated in some way. The, the distinction between despair and hope is not what we thought it was. And the last great line here is, we have our inheritance. How he has labored to be able to say in honesty that line. We have our inheritance. So it's with a great deal, I think, of uh, not altogether relief, but it's certainly a sense of having gotten to square one that Eliot says at the end of section two, we have our inheritance. Now the journey can begin. The poem was published in 1930, and in a letter written in August of 1930, Eliot said that what he was trying to do in Ash Wednesday was to explore a realm situated between the usual subjects of poetry and devotional verse. In other words, he said, the experience of a man in search of God and trying to explain to himself his intenser human feelings in terms of the divine goal. Trying to explain his intenser human feeling in terms of the, of the divine goal. 
So trying to explain an emotional reality that is very close and very intimate and very bound up with his being and his body and his temporal existence, trying to explain all of that in terms of a larger cosmic scene. The inheritance that Eliot had acquired, I think, is both the inheritance of the received religious tradition and the inheritance of his own early poetic work, which is a product of his own spiritual struggle. So when I think we can appropriately begin from this point on to look at Eliot's work as an attempt to weave the religious tradition with his own experience, because that too is part of his inheritance, his own personal life experience, and particularly that, in terms of poetry, particularly that personal life experience, which became articulated in the poetry. So from now on, he will be very consciously trying to integrate images and themes that he dealt with in his earlier poetry with images and themes out of the religious tradition. I think the best way to understand Eliot's method is to understand how much of a student of Dante he was. And uh, what he learns from Dante it leaps out at us all over the place in the poetry from now on. Uh, but in section two of the poem, when he did that little litany to the lady, which begins with uh, Lady of Silences, Calm and Distressed, Torn and Most Whole, the next phrase in the, in the litany is Rose of Memory, Rose of Forgetfulness. And this is something that he learned from Dante's journey. And that is that when Dante gets to the, the top of the Purgatorial Mountain, very much in this poem, by the way, particularly these two sections, are concerned with the, with the purgatorio that's described in Cantos 29, 30, 31. Uh, that is to say, the earthly paradise to which one arrives after undergoing the purgation. This poem is really about the purgation itself, but it keeps alluding to those, to, to that scene. And when Dante gets there, he meets Beatrice. And in meeting Beatrice, he is harshly criticized by Beatrice, uh, brought to an awareness of his former folly and sinfulness. And then he drinks of two streams, the river of Lethe and the river of Unui. The river of Lethe is the river of forgetfulness, and the river of Unui is the river of remembrance. And uh, I think when Eliot says, rose of memory, rose of forgetfulness, he's talking about the place where one meets the lady and has to drink of those two rivers. What's implied in both Dante and Eliot, in an elaborate way in Dante, is that all of the past my past, one's past, has to be forgotten to the extent that we remember it in terms of its waywardness, in terms of its sinfulness, to the extent that when we remember it, what we remember about it is the sinful. It has to be forgotten. And the first river one has to drink of is the river of forgetfulness. And the second river one drinks of is the river of remembrance. And then all of it has to be remembered. But now it can be remembered in a different way. It can now be reappropriated, reassimilated, understood, blessed. Let me read all of section three, and then we'll come back to it and, and talk about it uh, in detail. 
At the first turning of the second stair, I turned and saw below the same shape twisted on the banister, under the vapor in the fetid air, struggling with the devil of the stairs, who wears the deceitful face of hope and of despair. At the second turning of the second stair, I left them, twisting, turning below. There were no more faces, and the stair was dark, damp, jagged, like an old man's mouth, driveling, beyond repair, or the toothed gullet of an aged shark. At the first turning of the third stair was a slotted window bellied like the fig's fruit, and beyond the hawthorn blossom and a pasture scene, the broad back figure dressed in blue and green enchanted the maytime with an antique flute. Blown hair is sweet, brown hair over the mouth blown, lilac and brown hair. Distraction. Music of the flute. Stops and steps of the mind over the third stair. Fading. Fading. Strength beyond hope and despair. Climbing the third stair. Lord, I am not worthy. Lord, I am not worthy. But speak the word only. You see, we remember those first lines in section one so well. Because I do not hope to turn again, because I do not hope, because I do not hope to turn. Uh, the determination at the beginning of the poem not to return to the former way. Determination to emerge out of the wasteland and the place where the hollow men live. But suddenly in section three, he says, at the first turning of the second stair, I turn. He's now turning again, but now he's turning upward on a staircase. Let me talk a little bit about the, the image of the staircase. He obviously got it from Dante, most importantly. Uh, Dante uses it in the purgatorial. You see, the, in purgatory, there, in, in the anti-purgatory, before you actually get into purgatory, uh, there are the three stairs of a, of a proper act of contrition or a proper a sacrament of penance. But more importantly, in purgatory proper, there are the seven steps or ledges that on each one of which is purged one of the seven deadly sins. And the soul who is on the purgatorial climb uh, goes up those steps or finds himself or herself on one of where the, where the main sin must be purged and the journey proceeds. Eliot's relying heavily on Dante for that. There are in the, those ledges have two turns because of the way in which Dante has them laid out. So then there are two turns in these in this reference here. But also I think uh, one of the influences on Eliot at this point is uh, John of the Cross, the Spanish, uh, 16th century Spanish mystic John of the Cross, who has the, the book on the climbing Mount Carmel and particularly Dark Night of the Soul. And in Dark Night of the Soul, John of the Cross talks about the stairs leading to a contemplative life. And I just want to refer to a place in John of the Cross which I think has some echoes here to what's going on. Because John of the Cross, too, talks about the Beloved. And in John of the Cross, the Beloved is Christ. But also, when he talks about the Beloved, he talks about the Beloved as though the Beloved were a woman. So it's both of those things. So, and that will come up in this poem in a minute. So this is from John of the Cross. 
The first step of love causes the soul to languish. In this sickness, the soul swoons as to sin and as to all things that are not God. Just as such a sick man, first of all, loses his appetite and taste for all food and his color changes, so likewise in this degree of love, the soul loses its taste and desire for all things and can find no pleasure, support, consolation, or abiding place in anything whatsoever. Well, you see, we come in on, in the Ellie poem, we come in on step two. And that's because what John the Cross just described there as step one is what, what Wasteland and Hollow Men are all about. Not being able to find it and losing one's taste for it. Why should the aged eagle stretch its wing? The second step causes the soul to seek God without ceasing. This is John the Cross still. On this step, the soul, in whatsoever it thinks, it thinks at once of the beloved. Of whatsoever it speaks, in whatsoever matter present themselves, it is speaking and communing at once with the beloved. That's second step. The third step, the third step of the ladder of love is that which causes the soul to work and gives it fervor so that it fails not. On this step, the soul considers great works undertaken for the beloved as small, even so to Jacob, though after seven years he had, made, he had been made to serve seven more, they seemed few because of the greatness of his love. So a reference there to Jacob working for Rachel. Not strictly applicable to the imagery in this poem, but I think part of the background that Eliot is drawing on. So he's drawing on John of the Cross and, and Dante, which, which means he's putting together, which is something, of course, Dante does too, the purgatorial journey and the devotion to the lady as the uh, procedure for developing the religious life, all done under the uh, terms of a, of a contrition that consists of forgetting and remembering, forgetting and remembering. We can say that with more confidence because when this poem, section three, was published independently, the title of the poem was Al Son de l'Escalina, which is a phrase from Canto 26 of Dante's Purgatorio, and I will read to you the Mandelbaum translation. This is the, a passage which is in discussion with the Arnaud Daniel, a poet that Dante uh, engages in conversation in Canto 26 of Purgatorio. He is being purged of the sin of lust, and Dante is particularly interested in this because that's his sin. He understands that he himself will have to be purged of that. As a matter of fact, Right after he talks with, with Danielle, he has to put himself through the wall of fire, which is that which purges lust and makes it available for love. But in any case, both Dante and Eliot are particularly concerned about the area in the Purgatorio where the lustful are purged of their lust. You have to remember now that going down into hell, lust is the first sin, and coming out of hell or going up the Purgatorio mountain, lust is the last sin. And that's because lust is the easiest sin to redeem. The hardest sin to redeem is pride, and lust is the easiest sin to redeem, because it already has, it is already connected with those vitalities that can become love under the proper circumstances. Uh, it's not like greed or it m mean-spiritedness. It, it, it already is available for transformation. So, here's the passage. Daniel says to Dante, with grief I see my former folly, with joy I see the hoped-for day draw near. 
Now, by the power that conducts you to the summit of the stairway, I pray you remember at time opportune my pain. Then, in the fire that refines, he hid. He dove back into the fire that will purge his lust. Eliot has drawn three of these passages into his own. This is about four or five lines. He's drawn three references into his own poetry from this passage. Now, the one that was the title of this poem, Al Son de Lescalina, is translated by Mendelbaum, The Summit of the Stairway. Well, that's what it means, The Summit of the Stairway. So this poem was once called The Summit of the Stairway. It's the journey to the, up the stairway. The, the poet who is being purged of lust says to the pilgrim who is in need of being purged of lust, when you get to the summit of the stairway, remember me. Now, Eliot would be identifying with everybody in that little gestalt, you see. When you get to the summit of the stairway, remember me. Remember, what's translated here, remember, is Sylvania Vos, which comes up uh, shortly in the poem that we're talking about now. And when it says, then in the fire that refines he hid himself, the Italian for that is Poisiscosi nel foco cagliafina, which Eliot used at the, almost at the very end of the wasteland. So it's quite clear that Eliot is preoccupied with this moment in the purgatorial journey. And we're, we're appropriate we have our attention called to that, where lust is being transformed. 